Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have reached that point in the winter when it seems like we may never see anything green and growing ever again. But never fear, not only will spring come, it always does come. But right now, you can bring the garden indoors and start working on your indoor hydroponics setup. Chris Curry is an associate professor of horticulture at Iowa State University, and he is here to get us started. Hello, Chris. Hey, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for being here. And for the uninitiated, what are hydroponics? Well, um, the, literally, it is, derives from the word uh, hydro, water, and ponos, working. So it's working water. And a lot of times, we think of plants that are growing in water, another, said another way, soilless culture. Now, what you include in that can kind of vary. Um, there are some circles where maybe the poinsettia that you're getting ready to throw on top of the compost pile, um, growing in that peat moss, that could be hydroponic because there is no mineral soil in that growing media. It is soilless technically. But a lot of us think of plants that are growing in some sort of water solution without any substrate. And there has been kind of a hydroponic boom in recent years, both uh, commercially and for home growers, right? Absolutely. There's been uh, a lot of popularity in controlled environment agriculture, CEA, and we're seeing a lot of that popping up where you're starting to see um, more crops grown in controlled environments. And that's going to be a lot of leafy crops, lettuces and herbs, fruiting crops, tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, eggplants, um, high sugar melons like chanterelle melons. Um, it, lots of different crops can be grown. And people like it because generally when we grow commercially in protected culture or when, or when you're growing in your home, we're often able to grow um, a crop that's a little bit higher quality because we're protecting it. It's a form of protected culture. Because there are no pests. Well, there can be pests. Um, it just We have more chance to exclude them when they're in our home or when they're in a greenhouse because, you know, we can wipe our shoes off and leave the mud boots um, in, in that room out by the garage. Um, and we're in the greenhouse. Maybe you're going to walk through a, a solution that's going to clean off the bottom of your shoes so you're not tracking things in. If they make it in there, like if you've ever had mealybugs in your house plants, you know they can become a scourge. Uh, but there's a better chance to exclude them, as opposed to that tomato that's sitting out in your garden all summer fending for itself. So this is a way to grow crops out of the growing season, but people don't use it just exclusively outside of the growing season. Oh, no, not at all. You can use it out of the growing season and you can use it in the growing season. Um, it's a little bit less traditional, like you often don't walk down your neighborhood and see uh, hydroponic systems sitting out in your neighbor's front yards. Um, although I think I'm going to become that guy in my neighborhood pretty soon. Um, but it, it is becoming uh, a, a lot more popular. And there are places like Australia where you have people using these systems outdoor year-round, or even in the United States, places with a climate that's conducive to growing crops outdoors. Uh, California, Florida, you can grow crops out uh, year-round there. Okay, we love to talk about how the soil in Iowa is the best soil in the world. What is the benefit to growing something hydroponically outside instead of taking advantage of our incredible soil? 
Well, there's a there's a couple of different ways that you can look at it. And I am not a purist by any stretch of the means. I like plants that are grown in soil. I like plants that are grown in water. I like plants that are grown in the air. I just like plants. Um, but one of the benefits with hydroponics is that you can recirculate that nutrient solution. So in an outdoor situation, when you apply fertilizer and you apply water, there can sometimes be opportunities for that to uh, leach out of your raised bed or maybe leach out of your field. Um, in a hydroponic system, we're usually using something that is closed and recirculating. So we're not going to be taking that um, fertilizer solution and just draining it out of the system. We're capturing it and recirculating it and reusing all those nutrients. So we often have uh, very high water and nutrient use efficiencies. Um, a, a statistic that people like to say is that if you look at an acre of lettuce grown hydroponically compared to an acre of lettuce um, grown in the field, it's a 93% reduction in the amount of water it takes. Wow. Okay. So right now, I want to focus on setting up hydroponics in your own home. And this has gotten so popular, Chris, that there are a lot of kits. I mean, I could go online and buy one of a dozen different kits to set up hydroponics in my own home. How do you feel about those kits? Hey, you heard me already say it. I love plants. So if it gets people getting more plants in their house and starting to become horticulturists, I love it. But I also am kind of a DIY guy. I can remember putting together my first orchid grow rack when I was a sophomore in college and finally moved out on my own. And it was a big Lowe's DIY thing. But you can do the same with hydroponics. You're really just trying to provide water and nutrients uh, to the plant as well as adequate temperatures and adequate light. And so we can do that really easily, uh, a lot more cheaply sometimes than some of those pre-made kits. Okay, well, get me set up. What do I need? Okay, well, let's just start. Um, go down to your basement and find sort of a big storage tub that has some old clothes or Christmas decorations that you no longer need. And put those clothing and Christmas decorations in a bag and bring them, donate them somewhere. So now you've got this nice empty bin. Then get a hole saw and drill uh, somewhere around one and a half maybe two-inch diameter holes about six inches apart on center in the lid of that tub. Now, in those holes are where we're going to eventually set our little plants. And this system that I'm describing is very well-suited for leafy crops like lettuce or herbs. Then we're going to want to go ahead and clean that tub out and then fill it with water. And that's going to be your reservoir, your nutrient solution. But we do have to add fertilizer to it. Now, Aaron and I were talking a little bit about hydroponic fertilizers before this. And sometimes when people are doing their own, they'll go underneath their kitchen and they'll grab the most readily available fertilizer. And what do you think that's going to be that they've got in their home? In their it, kitchen cupboard? You, you tell me. <laughs> miracle Grow, something, okay. some sort of a houseplant fertilizer. Yeah. And that's a great fertilizer for houseplants, but it doesn't work well for hydroponics because if you look at the label on those houseplant fertilizers... They've got a lot of ammoniacal nitrogen. You can't use fertilizers that have a lot of ammoniacal nitrogen. You want to use something that's got a lot of nitrate nitrogen. So when you go to the garden center, you want to look at, at the container and get something that's got 93% or more nitrate nitrogen. And that's really the big difference between hydroponic fertilizers and, say, other regular houseplant water-soluble type fertilizers. And is that easy to find? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. You can go to a lot of a lot of garden centers and greenhouses. Like you said, this is increasing in popularity. 
So you can find that um, you can find that pretty commonly in stores. A good trick too is, uh, and I'm not just trying to reference our other favorite topic, orchids. But if you ever find Phalaenopsis orchid fertilizer, that is usually a high nitrate fertilizer as well. Okay, so I've got a big tub of water with fertilizer in it, and I've got a lid with holes in it. What else do I need? You've got it filled with water. You've got some of that high nitrate fertilizer, and you can mix that according to uh, instructions. So you've got your fertilizer in there now. Now, you need to go back down in your basement and find that old fish tank from the failed goldfish experiment that you had and grab out that little bubbler that aerated the fish tank. That is the key to hydroponic systems because what's really cool is lifting a plant that's grown hydroponically out of the nutrient solution and you've got these roots that were just grown in the water. People are pretty amazed and they said, I didn't know that plants could grow in water like that. Just about anything can grow in like water like that if they've got oxygen. So that's why that little bubbler that you use to aerate your fish tank, you also want to use to give oxygen to those plant roots because they're also respiring, taking up that oxygen and generating carbon dioxide. Okay. And in those holes, when you are planting plants, obviously, if I just drop seeds in there, that's not going to work. What do I do? They would float away. No. So you can start your seeds in a variety of different substrates. Now, some of those things that you can use for starting seeds in the spring, like those peat pellets or coconut pellets, especially if they've got a little fiber wrapper on the outside, that can work well. You can also use some of the substrates that are specialized for hydroponics, and that's going to be things like phenolic foam, which is, uh, you'd know it as floral foam that you stick cut flowers into. Uh, You can also use rock wool. These are also increasingly popular at more general garden center stores, or you can also go to local indoor gardening shops as well that will definitely have all the supplies you need to grow hydroponically. So you can start your seed in there and water it, and as soon as you see those leaves or the cotyledons starting to grow out of that seedling, you can set it into that hole that you've got and make sure that the bottom of that um, young plant, that uh, substrate, is touching the water and you're good to go. How about light? Okay, so we wanted to, uh, so you've given your crops water, you've given them nutrients, we want to provide adequate temperatures and adequate light. So right now, depending on what you're heating your home to, is a great time to grow lettuce, might not be the best season for basil. I myself am heating to around 65 degrees Fahrenheit uh, during the day. Basil likes it a little bit warmer. Uh, Lettuce is going to grow a little bit cooler. But whatever temperature we've got, it's going to work pretty well for our crops. Light, you want to give them as much as possible. So if you've got a south window, go ahead and place this tub in that south window. If you've got a uh, west window, go ahead and place it in the west window. If you've got some fluorescent lights and can suspend them, 12 inches above those plants. Go ahead and try that. There's a variety of ways that we can try to get adequate light to those crops. Okay. I mean, even with short days this time of year, a south window is going to do it? Absolutely. Well, it might not, it might not do it, but it's going to be the most that we've got. Um, So supplemental light is always good. You know, uh, plants indoors in the winter are really never going to turn down extra photons. Uh, But, uh, you know, a south window You'd be able to grow your crop. It'll take a little bit longer than, say, that same south window in June, but it will still be enough, especially to grow a crop that's going to be growing cooler like lettuce. All right. Well, we've got about 30 seconds, Chris. What crops are you growing in your home? uh, Well, I'm I'm a father of twins, so I I have, I think, a Christmas cactus somewhere (laughs) and and a snake plant that might be 
trying to survive. Okay, uh, all right. So this my, is a future project. <laughs> in, my, in my, but I, I grow a lot of uh, lettuce and herbs. Leafy green crops are are what I grow uh, in and out at the greenhouse. So so that's going to be one of the things that I've grown, and I've grown them in all these types of systems. Before. All right, and you can grow them year round if you've got all the all the stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Chris Curry is an associate professor of horticulture at Iowa State University. For more gardening information and tips, please subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today is Horticulture Day, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about any of the plants or trees in your life. You can give us a call at 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Chris Curry is here today, Associate Professor of Horticulture at Iowa State University. We have been talking aquaponics, hydroponics, pardon me, hydroponics today. And Chris, I mean, you make me want to stop by the big box store on the way home and and just do a setup. Thank you for your enthusiasm. So if anybody else has been bitten by the bug, you are welcome to call and ask Chris your questions. 866-780-9100. And Aaron Style is also here. Hello, Aaron. Good morning. Thank you for being here today. And all right, before we get to questions, I need to ask you about heavy snow on trees. There is yeah. so much heavy snow out there. And I know a lot of people have lost branches. A mm-hmm. lot of trees are bending over. What do you think about when you see that, Aaron? <laughs> yeah, it is concerning to see. And I, I've definitely lost my white pine has lost a, a branch or two uh, because of the heavy snow load. And uh, especially evergreens can hold quite a bit um, of snow. And if you want, you can go out and carefully brush off the snow to help relieve some of that pressure. The key to this, though, is to make sure that whether you're using a gloved hand or I would I would recommend a broom uh, so you don't get all wet, but uh, is to sweep upwards instead of down. It's really uh, it's really easy to look at that and just like, you know, w- look to sweep it off the the shrub by going down, but that puts a lot, that puts even more stress on the already stressed branches. And if you can sweep upward, even if the snow then goes into the center of the plant, that's not a problem. It's still um, relieving some of that kind of pressure that builds up when you see that. Now, if it's covered with ice, that's a different story. Usually you kind of just want to leave it alone if it's covered with ice. Maybe you will prop it up if you're really worried about it with like a board temporarily. But typically we do a lot more damage trying to get ice off of plants than if we were just leave them alone. Oh, okay. Well, and and usually, you know, when it snows, things melt or fall off pretty quickly. <laughs> I know. Not oh, the wind this picks time. Up. Yeah, I know. I, I've, I've got several things uh, at home that um, are very much buried in snow. And uh, uh, some of it, yeah, needed a little, little help. Um, or at least I felt 
like I was helping. And yeah. Most of these plants, even if it is bent over, so you're looking at like um, a small tree or a shrub that has these branches that seem like they're really arched over. And even after you get the snow off of them, they're still kind of pointed downward a little bit. I don't know how plants do this really, but they always tend to get right back to where they were or pretty darn close. So don't worry about it too much until after things start warming up. Uh, and then then you'll know for sure if that branch had broken um, and is leaning over that way or, um, or something like that. But usually right. they, they spring back somehow. Not right away, but they, they, they usually spring back. All right. So I guess if we have enough worry to spare from the sub-zero temperatures and all of the other things in our lives right now, we shouldn't fret too much about the trees. And it's going to warm up next week. So yeah. I guess... I guess we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> that, actually, that's going to bring us a whole new, uh, a whole new group of things to worry about with right. things uh, melting quickly. That's true. But you know, if we're going to get this cold, I want this much snow because that snow is actually a great insulator. And so, uh, especially for smaller plants and perennials, this snow really did a lot to protect those plants from those extreme temperatures. And so, if it's going to get this cold, I'd much rather have a lot of snow around too. All right. That's I will try to embrace your attitude. <laughs> you can give us a call with your questions. 866-780-9100. Send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. No better way to keep warm today than by thinking about plants and growing things. And uh, we've got a caller on the line with some experience in hydroponics, David in Council Bluffs. Hi, David. Hi, Charity. Thank you for taking the call. Yeah. What did you want to talk about? Well, uh, just a pointer for Chris. I've I've been doing an indoor aquaponics setup for 12 years now. Learned quite a little bit about how to do this without breaking the budget. And the lighting requirements are essentially the same for aquaponics and hydroponics. And what I have found recently is that the four-foot LED shop lights and you can buy those online for about $15 a piece when you buy them in lots of four. Those put out basically the 5,500K light that the plants need, and you can suspend them from ratcheting plant hangers, and this lets you then adjust the light, the height of the light above the grow bed however you want it. Very economic to get into. They each draw 40 watts. Works like a charm. Just wanted to pass that along. Yeah, well, David, before I let you go, um, and, unless there's a lot more barking, <laughs> tell me <laughs> about your setup, because we'll talk more about aquaponics, which that involves fish in the system. What is your setup like? Yeah, I started this uh, 12 years ago in my shop area downstairs, and I'm using all Rubbermaid tanks for it, the fish tanks, 300-gallon. The grow beds are 50-gallon. And uh, the whole nutrient stream comes off of one small koi and four large goldfish. Uh, grow charred mostly because of the tremendous nutrition. It, it's as nutritionally dense as anything that I've found, and it's a cut-and-come-again product. So I, I harvest it uh, every week to 10 days and have, have way more, uh, you know, than I can give away to the neighbors. I mean, our, our son's rabbits are eating some of it. But uh, it, it just works like a charm. It's simple, easy to do. My whole setup draws less than 500 watts of electricity and takes essentially uh, no maintenance. 
Wow, that's pretty incredible, David. Chris, uh, let's talk a little bit about aquaponics. We didn't touch on that earlier, but tell me why that's beneficial to put fish into this system. Well, I think um, mostly, have you ever seen um, someone growing a peace lily in a clear vase with a, in all water with a betta fish? No. Swimming under it? Because <laughs> that, that's, I guess that sounds, maybe in some circles that's random, but for some of us that's normal. Okay. Um, that's, that's, that could be pretty popular, and that's the, the kind of, I think, the most common form of aquaponics, and people don't really know it, because the fish produce waste, and that waste product that the fish produce is almost all that plants need. It's not quite what they need. They need some extra calcium and iron and, I believe, potassium. Um, but uh, the plants can use that fish, wa- fish waste for their fertilizer. And so with aquaponics, the fun part is is you get to grow fish. Now, it depends on if you're growing them for fun and they're ornamental fish that you're collecting or if they're going to end up becoming food later. But either way, you're growing fish. They produce that waste. Then you put in this little thing called a biofilter, and that's where there's two different types of bacteria that are basically converting nitrogen into different forms until it gets to nitrate. And again, like we were talking about before with the hydroponics, that nitrate is what the plants take up. So then the plants take that nitrate up, reduce that load that's in the water, and makes it safe for your fish to be in that water as well. So like when you have your fish tank um, and you'd be emptying out, you know, 25% of the water every week or two to keep that nitrogen down, the plants are doing that for you instead. Okay. And so, of course, you're you're feeding the fish, you're caring for the fish, and some people are raising the, the fish as livestock, right? Yep, and it, it can go there. There's there's all sorts of different ways. Um, in a, in a lot of commercial aquaponic systems, you generally are making more money on the plants than you are the fish, at least in this part of the country. Um, so it, it tends to be more of a plant system. But you can absolutely be growing those fish as crops, um, and that could be tilapia. You know, uh, it could be um, other edible crops. You know, we've got some local examples. Some interesting ones have been with shrimp, um, but. Uh, there's also some interesting opportunities in growing other types of fish like those koi fish that are just beautiful, very long-lived. Um, for people who want to get into commercial enterprise, they're very expensive. That'd be a great fish to have in an aquaponic system yeah. as well. I, now I'm going to need a full home renovation so that obviously I can dedicate a lot more space <laughs> to this as well. You are welcome to join the conversation with your questions, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, we have a question from Isabella in Northwood. She says, we're looking for an evergreen shrub for north central Iowa that is fairly large, 5 to 10 feet tall, and can grow in partial shade. The site gets direct sun maybe 20% of the day. Soil is well-drained. We have a few red osier dogwood there, but they're not doing great. Not sure if it's diseased or too shady. Some serviceberry shrubs are growing well. The fescue turf at the site is growing well. Do you have any suggestions? So um, there's a couple, there's one particular broadleaf evergreen that comes to mind right away for a part shade location, and it's rhododendron. Um, probably the most ubiquitous one for us here in Iowa that does well is a cultivar called PJM. But there are others that are um, winter hardy and hold on to those big green, dark green, evergreen leaves uh, all winter. Um, and then, of course, have these beautiful, usually pink flowers, sometimes white or red in the in the spring. So that's one evergreen that comes to mind. Some of the boxwood also do okay in part shade. Um, It depends on how shady the part shade is. 
And then the other one that comes to mind is um, hemlock and yew. Those are both evergreen uh, conifer, evergreen needled conifers that do fairly well in part, especially part shade locations. The challenge with those two is that both of them tend to be larger than 10 foot tall and five feet wide. Um, you in particular uh, prunes very easily and, and responds to it very well. And sometimes you can find dwarf varieties that um, grow much slower. So it'll take years and years and years before they get past that size. But uh, five, five by 10 is actually a relatively small shrub. Most shrubs do get bigger than that. So it's that, that, that would be, that would be the only challenge with using something like a yew or a hemlock. All right. Well, Isabella, thanks so much for the question. You can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org or call 866-780-9100. We've got a couple lines open for you right now. David is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, David. Hey, how's it going this morning? Good. What's your question? We inherited a couple of arrow gardens and... We use them a lot. We grow some, my wife and I grow some lettuces mostly in the wintertime. But um, I've heard that you lose some nutritional value by uh, growing indoors as opposed to, you know, the natural sunlight outdoors. And I just want to know if that's true and how much you lose and, and if there's anything you can do to combat that. Okay, I guess I'll take that one. Um, there's not, oh, okay, so I'm going to try and answer this the best way that I know how. I don't believe. The growing indoor versus outdoor, there should be no difference in nutritional value. Um, it still should be nutritious. Now, there are some things that will happen. When plants are stressed out, they will upregulate different phytochemicals. Okay, so sometimes when a plant is grown outdoors under more adverse conditions or under different spectrum of light, it can change the chemical composition of the plant. And you might have um, an increased concentration or higher amounts of certain phytonutrients. But the converse can also be said, um, not to use an overly academic example, but we've done research here, which is now used commercially, on using, using different light spectra indoor to impose similar stresses or to get plants to upregulate those similar phytochemicals to make a higher quality plant grown indoors, like upregulating more flavor compounds in culinary herbs by using lights that maybe have a bit more in that blue range that's going to be more stressful. So um, you can have sort of subtle differences, but I do not believe that there would be nutritional value as far as the lettuce you're growing indoors versus the lettuce outside, yours being um, less nutritious in a detrimental way to your health. I don't believe that would be the case. I'm not sure if that answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. It does. It's, it's a heck of a lot more than I knew coming in. And I wouldn't think, but I just thought my wife's a nurse and she's, she's studying, you know, nutrition. And, and she had read that because of the spectrum of light, it might affect it somewhat. Yeah, light spectrum can absolutely, like it. It, it, it can absolutely change it, but it's the same. I mean, you can see that same difference in lettuce grown throughout the year. Um, you'll have nutritional quality differences uh, growing outdoors because of the light spectrum will change. And so that can be true, but it's not anything where the lettuce that you're eating is bad lettuce. It just, it, it can vary throughout the year. Yes. And lettuce is pretty good for you. 
Absolutely. (laughs) All right. David, thank you so much for the call. You can give us a call, 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. We have a question from Bev in West Des Moines. She says, my husband and I moved into our home two years ago, and I would like to plant three to four trees in our backyard. We were made aware that the builder did not likely save a lot of topsoil. We've been told that we would have to pretty intensely fertilize our soil during the planting process. What type of fertilizer would you recommend? Or should I use an organic soil that has fertilizer? I'd like to plant cottonless cottonwoods and or ornamental pear or something similar that gives a lot of shade, is somewhat fast growing, and could be green for a while into the fall. Mm, Okay. Um, you know, most of the time we don't recommend or most trees don't need a lot of um, fertilizer, even at establishment. Um, this would be a good opportunity. And actually, first thing in the spring, as soon as the ground thaws, would be a great time to, to get a soil test done to kind of see what you are actually working with. In particular, that will be interesting to note is how much organic matter is in that soil. Typically, when we think about really terrible soil that's left behind by a builder, it's really clay or rocky. And so knowing some of that kind of information will help move forward um, with that because um, in most situations, we don't need to fertilize uh, trees um, really much at all. So the fact that somebody is saying that um, makes me really want to investigate it a little bit more closely because uh, the soil could be absolutely horrific, I suppose, and then that it would benefit a little bit from that. But you only know that unless you get a soil test. So that would be $12 well spent this spring um, to kind of better understand what you're getting into. And I would, I, w- I do have to comment on, on the tree selection. Um, the cottonwood, the cottonless cottonwood, uh, very tolerant tree, um, would probably do fairly well, like especially in a poorly drained soil, that kind of thing. Um, I would probably shy away from a Bradford pear. Um, they have really been shown to be um, more and more uh, weedy and detrimental, especially to our native woodland areas. Because Very they, invasive. Yeah. And so um, I, I don't tend to recommend Bradford pear anymore. There are some other trees that are similar that would probably be better alternatives, a good native alternative that has... Um, Pretty spring flowers and lovely fall color, just like the Bradford pear, and is about the same size as serviceberry. Um, so that's a great alternative, potentially. It doesn't have the same look necessarily, but it has the same attributes. And then um, most of the crab apples would be better uh, uh, and easy to find as well. Um, Redbud is another similar sized tree that's pretty and interesting, and I would probably lean towards those before a Bradford pear. Bev, thanks so much for the question. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Chris Curry, Associate Professor of Horticulture at Iowa State University. You can call us 866-780-9100. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. If you're dreaming of spring, if you're planning to start a hydroponic setup or, oh, anything in between, you can give us a call, 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With me today, Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist, and Chris Curry, Associate Professor of Horticulture at Iowa State University. And we've got a question from Lynn in Iowa City. She wants to know, what are some pollinator plants for shade? Hmm. Um, so a lot of our native flowering spring ephemerals are really great potential uh, pollinator-friendly uh, plants, things like Virginia bluebell, uh, bloodroot, um, uh, the native uh, red columbine. Um, these can all be, and, and the nice thing about the spring ephemerals, um, spring beauty, uh, um, dogtooth violet, trilliums, is that they come up super early in the season. And so they fill a need early in the season to support pollinators, which is often a time of the year when we don't have as many blooming things. And all of these plants do well in the shade. They're native to woodland uh, woodland areas. So um, that's where I would look to first. A lot of our traditional shade plants like hosta do produce flowers that are great for pollinators. They're a little bit later in the season. Um, hummingbirds like them too, if you want to think of hummingbird as a pollinator as well. Um, so there are other options too, but I would probably start first with the spring ephemerals uh, native to our woodlands. And planting spring ephemerals, is there a, a challenge to that? Sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes they're they're nice to plant in the fall. Some of them are very, have bulb or bulb-like structures making making fall an easier time to plant them. But bare root first thing in the spring works too. You might not get blooms that very first season, um, but it, it, you can be successful that way as well. I The only thing I would say is don't go out and dig them up and move them to your yard. It, they're a lot easier to get your hands on now than they used to be. I mean, yes. Chris, Chris was yes. talking about hydroponics exploding. I mean, think we've also seen this this huge increase in availability of native plants as people yes. have gotten more excited about it. Now, I, I have tried and successfully to get... Virginia bluebells to naturalize in the mm -hmm. woody part of my property. However, they always want to be where I don't want them to be. Like they <laughs> love to grow on the path that I walk on every day, but they don't want to grow next to the path. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing with uh, these kinds of settings too. The plants are going where they want to be. I suspect that there's maybe maybe a little bit better light in that spot. Uh, it certainly isn't less compacted, so I'm not sure about that. But uh, plants... If, if you're okay with it, a lot of times, especially when you're, when you're dealing with something like native woodland flowers, planting them and then letting them find their spot, even if it's not exactly where you want them, um, can be a really successful way to keep these things in your garden and happy. Um, because, yeah, maybe the spot you picked isn't quite right, but um, because they are um, because they're native and they... they uh, reproduce relatively easily in in the right setting. They can find their they can find their spot. Right. So my theory um, is not about soil compactness. It's about the fact that because we walk there, we keep the competition 
Yes. In check. And that's, that's that's probably very true. But uh, it also makes it hard to mow the paths. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. You don't want to run over those with the mower. No. No, I don't. <laughs> but that's that's a spring problem that I'm looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you have a, a winter problem or a spring problem, you can give us a call 866-780-9100. 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Chris, I want to go back to, to hydroponics for just a couple of minutes in thinking about a lot of the kinds of greens that we can grow in these setups in our homes. Of course, these are things that we do want to harvest and and use while they're growing. Tell me a little bit about how you keep a plant healthy and growing while you're also harvesting parts for use on your pizza or in your salad. Sure. So there's there's two different ways to approach, and let's just mostly talk about leafy crops because I think that's what a lot of people are growing in these home systems. Um, there's two methods of harvesting, and one is just uh, a complete harvest, you know, where you go and you harvest the entire plant. And the other system, uh, the previous caller referred to it as cut and come again. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have sort of this continual or successive harvest off of the same group of plants. So when you're doing this uh, cut and come again, one thing that you really want to be careful of is not over harvesting is because if you over harvest, then you're not leaving sufficient leaf area to capture light, photosynthesize and produce that new growth that you're going to want to harvest a couple weeks down the line. So the amount that you can harvest kind of varies with the growth rate of a plant. The slower a plant grows, you generally remove less. The more quickly the growth rate of a plant, you're allowed to harvest more with until you get that negative impact. Um, a lot of times, like with, uh, let's say, dinosaur kale or uh, some other types of kale, you can pick leaves up off the stem as the new leaves grow on top. Or with leaf lettuces, you'll grow sort of, you'll, you'll harvest that sort of mature outer leaves and leave those younger ones in the middle. Uh, with basil, you might be um, just removing those larger lower leaves or snipping off certain branches, or you may be cutting the top and getting it to branch and then harvesting those tips after you've made that first harvest. But the biggest thing is just not to over-harvest because if you over-harvest, that's going to delay the time until you can harvest again. So you want to be somewhat modest in the amount that you harvest. But that being said, I also like to just harvest completely and then start fresh just because... um, that's easier for me to plan that way, too. So both work. Well, and I was just going to ask about uh, when do you know it's time to start fresh? Because you can nickel and dime a plant for a long time. Yeah. But at well, what point does that, that is there a law of diminishing returns there? Well, I think that opinion is going to vary on the listener because I think we could look at houseplant collections among all of us and we could tell that those standards are going to vary about when a plant is done versus when it's still got some left in it, right? Right. Aaron, we have to talk you about know what I'm talking about. We have about. to talk about guilt. We have to talk about emotional <laughs> attachment and all kinds of things, right? A house plant gives me one side eye. It's out. Um, so <laughs> oh, you're you can, cold. I am. I don't have time for this. That's why I told you I got a snake plant and a Christmas cactus. <laughs> um, you can generally start to see the plants becoming more tired. Uh, a lot of times... Three or four harvests is about the max that you can get in a commercial situation. And that's usually going to be one with a little bit more nutrients, a little bit more optimal temperature, and a little bit higher light. So I'm actually a a, a bigger fan of just continually replanting. Because in a way, it kind of gets that cycle. 
and gets you in this um, continual growth. So if you've got, let's say you've got eight holes in that tub that we just drilled. Well, you could have the two plants you're going to harvest, and then you've got plants that are a week younger, two plants a week younger, two plants two weeks younger, and two plants that just went in the system, as well as maybe a couple weeks of seedlings that are ready. So I kind of like that regular and continual production just because it kind of gives you something to do on a regular basis. I also, you mentioned growing tomatoes hydroponically, which most of us are not going to do in our homes because that takes an enormous setup. Um, but I am curious, there's nothing that tastes as good as a fresh, locally grown tomato, whether that's from your own garden or, or from a local farmer who has just grown that tomato. When you see the hydroponic tomatoes at the grocery store, they look beautiful. I think they taste better than some of the other tomatoes that I could buy at the grocery store. They don't taste nearly as good as a, a local tomato, and maybe that's because they've been stored and they've had to travel. Can, do you feel like, Chris, that you can grow something hydroponically indoors that tastes as good as a tomato you could grow in your garden? Oh, my gosh, Aaron, where's the exit door? <laughs> uh, so I, I think that you uh, you hit something very similar because I think that I get in hot seats a little bit when I say, like, oh, hydroponic produce is better than outdoor-grown produce. I'm saying that when it comes to commercially grown. There's nothing that compete with the strawberries in your backyard, the tomatoes from your CSA, um, there's nothing that compete with that just because it's the growing season. It's usually small scale. So a little bit more attention. So that's hard to compete with, but I do think you hit on something, you know, I think the tomatoes right now that are coming out of the greenhouse are absolutely superior to the field grown tomatoes that we're maybe getting from Mexico or the Southern United States. Um, there are opportunities that we're seeing. There is designer produce. Like, I don't know if you've gone onto the YouTube you can find these things of like a dozen strawberries from Japan for $100 that were grown hydroponically. Um, because like I alluded to earlier, in these hyper-controlled environments, completely indoors, you can control everything, the carbon dioxide, temperature, nutrients, just everything. And so you can, and again, if you're excluding pests and diseases, you can grow these, quote, perfect fruits. Um, so there are spectacular things that are possible. I'm not saying that everything grown in a controlled environment is going to be of that quality. Um, does that address kind of what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But when you were talking about also growing something hydroponically outdoors, do you feel like a tomato grown hydroponically in your front yard would taste as good as a tomato grown in your garden in your front yard? I, in, in that sense, I think, well, you know, that would be hard because some of the goodness about the tomatoes in your garden is a little bit of that drought stress because just a little bit of drought stress or a little bit of nutrient stress, some sort of stress that doesn't keep that tomato from growing to 100% its potential, but maybe growing to 90% of its potential, but with 100% of the flavor, that's going to be hard to replicate because in hydroponics, it, it's sort of like the humans at the end of that Wall-E movie. You know, there's no stress imposed on these tomato plants. They're just living large and in charge. So sometimes a little bit of that stress can be good and make something more flavorful. And we can do that commercially with tomatoes. What they'll do is they'll spike the nutrients midday to give a little bit of nutrient stress and reduce water uptake. And that produces smaller fruits with a more concentrated flavor that I think gets closer to some of those flavors that you get in those good garden grown crops. Interesting. And Aaron, when we've talked about starting seeds in the past, we've talked about how a little bit of air movement, a little bit of stress can help your transplants become stronger and, and make that transition better. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about stress also affecting the flavor. 
Yeah, you know, because if you think about it, and I, again, I'm going to the back to that um, that example with herbs. You think about what the deer won't eat. You know, they didn't eat your spearmint that you've got in your garden. That's because herbs produce those compounds as a defense, but we like those compounds not for the defense, but how they make the mojito taste. Um, <laughs> so we can stress plants out and enhance their stress response when that stress response benefits our palate. Okay. I'm also thinking about how stress has made me a much more, you know, These, this flavorful this metaphor, person. Yeah. This metaphor can go on, Charity. Love it. Love it. All right. We've got a question from Paul in Correctionville. He says, a naturalist walking our property last summer found a volunteer hazelnut bush. I'm thinking of planting hazelnuts as a landscaping feature. The plant found on our property is lanky and thin. Are there varieties that might lend themselves to landscaping? Um, yes, there are. I, there's not a lot of named cultivars for the ornamental landscape of, uh, of things like hazelnut, but they are lovely shrubs, especially if, um, they are not competing a lot for light. A lot of times when you find stuff kind of out, um, in, in the woodland or out in the prairie, there's a lot of uh, competition for light, for nutrients, for those, those kinds of things. And it will create something that may not be quite as full or uh, filled out um, as it would be in your landscape. I've, I've planted hazelnut in my landscape. It's wonderful, especially for bird uh, habitat. Um, and it's pretty in a, in a very different way than other shrubs are pretty. They have those kind of cone-like flower structures. Um, and so it is a, it's a lovely um, ornamental shrub. It's not as flashy as some of the other ornamental shrubs we might plant. Uh, but it does do quite well, even if it's not a named cultivar. And can you harvest hazelnuts? You could if the squirrels and birds didn't get it first. <laughs> <All> <laughs> I right. have the same problem with service berry. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a competition. Or, yes. or you just think about the fact that you're providing wonderful habitat and a food source and you stop yeah. competing. That works yes, too. Yes, yes. Um, before we run out of time, I want to go way back to um, – part of the conversation we were having about Bev's question when she was talking about bad soil in her yard mm -hmm. because it's a fairly new construction. That is something, Aaron, that a lot of people deal with. And, and yes. there are a lot of different ways to deal with it. As you mentioned, planting trees, it's not nearly as big a deal. But if you want to plant other stuff in your yard and you're in that situation, what do you recommend people do? One of the best things you can do, especially for something like vegetables or even a perennial border, if you have soil that is just not up to up to standards for good plant growth because it's super compacted, because um, it's really rocky, because it doesn't have enough organic matter in it, that kind of thing, building a raised bed is the best place to start. And you can do that more formally by putting up sides like you often see with vegetable gardens. You can also do that a little bit less formally by uh, uh establishing a berm of soil. So bringing in topsoil, creating a mound, um, and planting it on that. It doesn't have the kind of formal sides to it, but you're still introducing that really nice soil. And we know, especially for things like vegetables and perennials, that root, the, the root system of those plants is not going super deep into the soil. And so uh, a raised bed of 8 to 12 inches, most of the roots are going to be in that much better soil. And then you can start to work on trying to introduce more organic matter to your native soil or what's left of the native soil, um, uh, the original soil, if you will. Um, and, and then as time goes on, uh, organic matter will build up and, and um, you can start planting more things in 
not a raised bed. Mm. But when you have really bad soils, raised beds are the are perfect place to start. This also sounds like a very good argument for mulching those leaves in the fall. Yes, and that's one of the ways you can do that, mulching leaves, um, establishing any kind of green cover, whether that's turf grass or a ground cover or something like that, um, is going to be beneficial. Um, uh, aerating, uh, those kinds of things, the, the turf areas, if you have them, uh, is going to be beneficial to help kind of introduce more microbes and more organic matter to help build a, a nicer soil. We are out of time. Aaron Style, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. This is, uh, Hort Day is more therapeutic for me in the winter than the, the light therapy <laughs> lamp I have sitting on my desk. So thank you for making me feel better on this very, very cold day. Chris Curry, thank you so much. You betcha. Chris Curry, Associate Professor of Horticulture at Iowa State University. Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. We will be back with Horticulture Day again two weeks from now. We'll return to weekly hort shows so soon at the beginning of March. Spring is coming eventually. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gear, and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. We had technical support today from Kate Perez. Our assistant producer is Maddie Willis, and we had also technical support today from Steve Cooper. I'm Charity Nebbe. Have a great weekend and stay warm.